Well, if you brought your Bibles, and again, I hope that you'll bring them with you each week uh, as we study God's Word together. It's always neat to be able to hold it in your hand and to, to make some notes if you need to. Uh, and I don't know about you, but when I read stuff in Scripture, it's neat to go back, and I can remember that was on the top of some page, and it's easy sometimes to, to go back and to look at that and to remember it, and so uh, I hope that you will. If you don't, we've got to have all this stuff on the screen with us today. Uh, the, the book of Hebrews, real quick, for those of you who may be just joining us in this series, it is a book written to the, the people of God, the children of God, who were known as Hebrews. They came out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and Moses led them across the desert into the promised land. They became the people of God. And, uh, and these folks became known as the Jews. They, uh, they worshiped the Lord there in Israel. And they set up this incredible sacrificial system and all these things that pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah. Part of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do in this letter, uh, this is a letter that a pastor wrote to the church, as he's trying to explain to these people what, what, what the temptation is this. They, they came to Christ by grace and, and they were saved. We, we know this is a letter written to those who are believers. But for them, what began to happen was the day-to-day grudge began to take place. They began to kind of slip back into some of their old patterns and their old, their old habits. And they didn't quite know what to do with their sin. They knew that, they, that their sin before salvation had all been washed away. That when they confessed Christ as their Savior and believed in him to be their Lord and Savior, that their sins were taken care of. What they were doing, though, was they weren't sure quite how to prove their sincerity to God. They would, they would mess up like you and I mess up. And then they would want something tangible to say to God, okay, God, I'm really, really sorry, so I'm going to do this to prove to you that I'm sorry. And, and the easiest thing for them to do was to go back to that Jewish system of sacrifice. And so several of them were kind of going back to Judaism, and they were, they were in, in, that, in that step back toward Judaism and toward that sacrificial system and attending temple to, to make God happy. They were saying, God, your grace that you gave us that covered all of our past sins, it, it's great to cover our past sins, but we don't know that it's enough to cover the present and the future. So we're going to take the grace you give us and give you thanks for that, but we're going to add to it our works. We're going to go to church and prove, God, that we love you. Some people today still do that. They, they, they may have a relationship with Jesus, and, and then they say, you know what, we, we, need, to, we need to do better. We need to, 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 to be good. And so they'll come to church in an effort to do good, but as we will see, that doesn't always help. That, I mean, it's great to be here, and it's great to hear the gospel and, and to, to be able to study the Bible together, but it's not about grace plus works. It's about God's grace that, that has been given to us. And one of the things the writer of Hebrews is saying over and over again, we'll see him say it again today, is that what Jesus did was more than enough. Uh, he, he said in the first two chapters that Jesus was greater than all the prophets. Jesus was greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than all. And his grace is sufficient to do everything that we need for it to do. So let's jump into Hebrews chapter 3. He ties it into Hebrews chapter 2. And, and it's, it's important that we remember that when this letter was penned, okay, there were no chapter breaks, there were no verses, that's stuff that we've all added since then, so we can reference it. If I say to you, look at Hebrews chapter 3, then I don't say, look at that 19th paragraph in the letter of Hebrews, okay? I can just, we can reference it. So these chapter breaks were added, but it's a continuous letter that was written. And so this ties back into what was said before. In fact, he starts chapter 3 with the word therefore, and we always say that's, that's there for a reason. It's there to point us back to what has just come before that. He's just reminded us that Jesus is our high priest who helps us in our times of weakness, who helps us when we are tempted. And so here he's going to build upon that. He's saying, because Jesus is the one that is there and he is all sufficient, uh, therefore, 
holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. So again, he's identifying his, his audience as believers, okay, as Christians. He says, you're holy brothers. Jesus made them holy, and Jesus called them brothers. And so the writer of Hebrews brings those two terms together and says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling. This is the upward calling of Jesus on our lives. See, he's saying, you, you guys used to be one way, but now Christ has called you into his family. And that calling is a heavenly calling. He's, he's not just calling you to a place, but he's calling you to himself. And he's calling you to be his child. And so since you are holy brothers, since you do share in this heavenly calling, there's a responsibility that goes with that. This is important to grab. Some folks will tell you, yeah, I'm a Christian, okay? But nothing in their life has ever changed. I'm a Christian, but I'm, I'm exactly the way I was before I was a Christian. There's, there's no difference. There's no change. And here he's saying that, that those of us who are Christians, we, we have a responsibility. And that responsibility is to consider Jesus. That word consider means to pay careful attention to. So he says, I want you to really zero in and really focus upon Jesus because what he did and who he is changes everything in our lives. If Jesus is who he said he was, and if Jesus did everything that he said he did, then that, that changes, that's a game changer. It changes everything for us. So consider Jesus. He is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. So let's take those two things and talk about that in just a second. What does it mean that he is, is, is the apostle? Well, the apostles were the ones who represented God to the people. And, and isn't that what Jesus did? When Jesus left heaven and came to earth, he, he revealed to us who God is. He, he represented God to us. He made God known to us. So he is our, our apostle in that sense. And he's also our high priest. And the high priest is the one who represents the people to God. So he's saying Jesus fulfilled both of those roles. Jesus came and he revealed to us who God is. It said at the beginning of Hebrews that Jesus is this exact representation of the image of God, that he is, he is the, 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 the divine glory of God. So he's already said to us that Jesus is God, and now he's saying Jesus came and he revealed God to us, but then he comes and he represents us back to God. Part of the work of the high priest in the Old Testament was to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. So he would come into the, the temple or to the tabernacle, and he would offer animal sacrifices and sprinkle the blood as a sign of the covering of sins. And, and, and the shedding of the blood would be a, a, a sacrifice that was made on behalf of the people to cover their sins. And so he's saying here, Jesus fulfills both of those roles. He comes and he represents God to us and makes God known to us. But then he comes and he represents us back to God, uh, covering our sins with, with his own blood. Later in the book of Hebrews, he will say that Jesus did his work as our high priest, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the blood that he shed himself. So here he is. Jesus is the apostle, the high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him, faithful to God, who appointed him. So Jesus didn't just show up on scene as some man and go, you know what, I think I'm going to be a deliverer. I think I'm going to be this, this great messiah. This was a role that was, was handed to him by the Father. He was appointed to that role, and Jesus fulfilled God's plan perfectly. So he was faithful to God who had appointed him. And what, what the writer of Hebrews is about to do here is not to demote Moses. He's going to make a comparison between Jesus and Moses. And he's not trying in any way to diminish Moses, but he's trying to exalt Jesus. And what he's going to say to these Hebrews is that your all-time favorite hero, 
this guy named Moses, the one who stood before Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh would say no, and a plague would come. And, and they went back and forth and back and forth. And then Moses is finally their deliverer. He's the one that, that sets the, the millions of, of people free from Egypt and leads them to the promised land. Your all-time favorite hero was an incredible guy. But there's one that was in your midst that was even greater. And that's what he's about to talk about. So follow what he says here. He says, Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. Now to that, the Jews would say, amen. Jesus was, was good and Moses was good. And, and in their mind, they may even you know, be, be about ready to, to place Moses here and Jesus almost to that level with Moses. But again, the, the writer of Hebrews is not content to make Jesus equal with Moses. He's going to elevate Jesus above Moses. Moses came to provide physical deliverance. The people were enslaved in Egypt. They couldn't set themselves free. They needed someone from the outside that could come in and, and deliver them and set them free. And Moses delivered people physically. But Jesus came not just to deliver us physically from slavery, but to deliver us spiritually from the slavery that we have to sin. The Bible says that we are all slaves to sin. We are born into sin and we are slaves to sin our whole life. We may try to break free, but, but, but we can only go so far and that chain yanks us back. And so he's going to compare the role of these two men and, and what they did. He says that, that just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house, so was Jesus faithful. But watch this, for Jesus has been counted more or counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now think about this. For the Jews who all of their life had looked at Moses as being the end all. Okay? We talk about different football players and different sports figures who are the GOAT, the greatest of all times. For the Jews, Moses would have been the greatest of all times. He was the one who, who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. He's the one that went on the mountain and met with God face to face. And I was reading this morning in, in Exodus uh, chapter 33, I think it was verse 11, where it says, Moses used to meet with God face to face and talk to God as one friend would talk to another. There was this incredible exchange between Moses and God. And, 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 and Moses gave them the law. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them all of those things. And in their mind, he was the greatest of all times. And then the writer of Hebrews drops this bombshell. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. That would have been almost impossible for a Jew to swallow. Almost impossible for the, the, the believers of that day to, to, to wrap their minds around. But these are those who've met Jesus and know that Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses gave the law and the law enslaves. But Jesus brings truth and grace which sets us free. So they've experienced that and they've tasted that, yet their hearts are being drawn back to the law, back to the temple, back to the sacrificial system. And he's trying to remind them that, that you fell in love with one who was greater than Moses. Don't go backwards. Don't settle for lesser things. And so he says here, Moses has been, I mean, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And then he even ups the ante again. Look what he says. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now again, not taking any, any um, 
credit away from Moses, not trying to diminish Moses in any way, saying, listen, Moses was incredible, and Moses fulfilled his role as God wanted him to do. Moses was an incredible person. But even greater than that is Jesus. And he uses the illustration of, of a house versus the builder. Think about this. It, 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 he says there's, there's the glory of the house. You look at a person's house and you go, wow, this is an incredible house. And some houses just have that, that pop, that appeal. And you go, wow, this is it. And he says, but Jesus has even more. Because he's the builder of the house. Think, think about it. A house doesn't come into existence on its own. Just like you and I didn't come into existence on our own. A house can't build itself, and you and I can't build itself. A house can't, can't do anything of its own. So, so when you look at that house, it's a reflection on the builder. And the builder gets the honor. The builder gets the, 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 the more honor than the house itself because the house didn't just do itself. It was done by somebody else. And here's what he's saying. Moses was incredible. And you look at Moses and you think, can it get any better than this? And you would have to say, probably not, except for somebody made Moses. And somebody empowered Moses. And somebody used Moses. And somebody guided Moses. And somebody did all this work through Moses. Moses couldn't do any of that on his own. In fact, you remember when God called Moses? The biggest exchange and struggle that, that, that we read in Scripture between God and Moses, where Moses says, God, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And what does God say, Moses? You don't have to. I'm going to do this through you. So just as you would look at a house and say, man, that's an incredible-looking house, the, the real question is, who, who could build something like that? And he says, look at Moses, but realize that Moses didn't create himself, that Moses didn't do all of that. In fact, in Scripture, we see many times where Jesus says, listen, you you guys are are, are talking about the manna in the wilderness. Moses didn't give you that manna. God gave you that manna. Moses didn't do all these things. God did all those things. And so Jesus has more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Moses was created by Jesus. And, and so Jesus has more honor than him. Uh, we tend to reverse that. Romans chapter 1 talks about how that man worships the creation and not the creator. We get it backwards in our day. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't reverse those things. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Houses do not build themselves, and neither do men. We live in a day and a time where we talk about the self-made man, the self-made woman. Scripture says there is no such thing. That it's God that gives us life. That it's God that gives us breath. That it's God that wakes us up every day. It's God that gives us meaning and purpose to our jobs and to our ministries and to our calling. It's God that, 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 that keeps all things in existence. There is no such thing as a self-made man. And, and when we begin to think that we are self-made, it's a prideful issue where we go, you know what, I think I did this. Look what I did. You go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible. And you open up Genesis 1-1 and you look at it and it says, In the beginning, God. God created. And it's God that sustains. And, and, and even in, the, in, the, in this, this letter to the Hebrews, he's going to reinforce again and again that Jesus is the one that holds all things in existence and keeps all things going. So he's saying, guys, listen, you look at Moses and think he was incredible. There was somebody 
that, that made Moses that way. There's somebody that empowered Moses, that gifted Moses, that gave him to do that. And that person is Jesus. Again, not trying to diminish Moses. He comes back in verse 5. And he says, now listen, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So again, here he is about to distinguish Moses and Jesus. He says, Moses is faithful. He, he, I'm not taking anything away from Moses, the writer would say. He was faithful in all God's house as God's servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. So here he is, he's saying all that Moses spoke about points forward to something that's coming later. What was that something? It was actually someone, and that someone was Jesus. So when Moses gave the law, it was to point forward to a time where Jesus would, would, would fulfill that law on our behalf. When, when Moses gives them the sacrificial system, it's pointing forward to the time that this lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world named Jesus would, would die and would shed his blood and take that blood into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for you and I forever, a once and for all sacrifice that would make a difference in salvation and eternity for you and I. But, but look at the, I want you to look at the terms that he uses. Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant. Well, if you're a servant in a house, then there's somebody there that's greater than you, right? If you were the owner of the house, then you might say there's nobody greater in this house than me. But if you're the servant in the house, then you are under someone else. And he's trying to point that out through this language, that Moses was serving under God. He's in God's house. He is a servant in the house of the God. Moses was serving the purpose of God in his day, in his time, just as you and I are called to serve God's purpose in our day and time. So Moses is a servant in God's house. Uh, and, and look what he says about Jesus. But here's the comparison. Again, we've we got Moses. We're not taking anything away from him. But Christ is faithful, what? Over, over God's house as a son. Here's the comparison. Moses is a servant in God's house. Jesus is a son over God's house. Again, he's not taking away from Moses. He's just saying Jesus supersedes that. Jesus goes beyond anything that Moses could have done. Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus is a, is, is a faithful son over God's house. And then he says this, and we are his house. We are God's dwelling place. He lives in us because of what Christ has done. This is incredible stuff. It's not just looking forward anymore to something that was going to happen. It's looking now at what is reality, what is really taking place in this time and in this world. And so he says, and so you and I are God's house. If indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So he's saying here that we are his house, so we belong to him. And, and, and he deserves all the glory because he's the builder of our lives. He's the one that's created us. We are, we are all there. And then he says this. He says, we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Well, how in the world can we be assured that we'll do that? Because he has anchored us to himself. What Christ builds, 
will stand. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. One of the marks of, uh, of true belief, one of the marks that we have really been radically changed by Jesus is, is not just what we profess, not just what we say, but what, what lingers and what stays and what remains. There are some builders who build houses that look really, really good on the outside. And then you dig below the surface and you go, wow, this is not what I thought it was going to be. I talked to a friend the other day who lives in a, uh, in a mobile home. And some damage was, was uh, suffered during the, the hurricane. And they began to peel back the vinyl siding on the outside, which made the house look really good. And this is what she said to me. She says, we have cardboard beneath our vinyl siding. I never would have dreamed they'd built my house out of cardboard, she said. There's the facade that's up there. People say, well, I, I, I'm a Christian. And, and here's the proof. Look at the facade. Look at all the things that I do and I don't do. But let's go beneath the surface. Let's look at the heart and let's see what is there. And, and this ties back into Moses' exodus with the people out of Egypt. God's purpose was not just to get people out of slavery and to let them have their own land. That was a picture pointing forward to something that Jesus was going to come do in the spiritual realm. We, like the children of Israel, were born into slavery. We've been there all of our lives, chained to sin, unable to break free, unable to be set free. And, 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 and Moses came and delivered the people physically. But here's the problem. Their hearts never left Egypt. They were physically changed. Their location that they lived had been changed. There, there was no longer a taskmaster over them, beating them and, and forcing them to, to, to work for the pharaohs. But their hearts never left Egypt. We see that again and again in the Exodus story because when you follow the, the trek of the people across the wilderness, their hearts are always grumbling. There's this unbelief that God is able to provide. They, they go into a deal and, and if the food's not ready and waiting and, and somebody's prepared it and, and, and serving it to them, they, they start to grumble. And then God feeds them this miracle food out of heaven called manna. And, and it's there every day and it's there in abundance for them to eat. And what do they do? They begin to complain. Lord, we really like meat. I mean, every once in a while they threw a little meat in the pot back in Egypt. And their hearts keep going back because even though their physical locale had changed, their heart had never changed. And that's where he's going in the, in the rest of this chapter is to show us that, that, that we belong to the Lord and we have, we have been delivered, not physically, but we've been delivered spiritually from the chains that held us back. We, we don't have to be a slave to sin. Those old habits that we had, those old things that we used to do, the things that now we look back on and we go, man, I'm ashamed of, of who I was and what I did. I don't have to be that person any longer because of what Jesus did, but not because of what I've done. And it has nothing to do with where I live. It has everything to do with who I live for. I used to live for myself. Now I live for one who is greater. I used to serve myself, and now I serve one who is greater. I used to trust in my ability, in my strength, and now I trust in his grace, in his grace alone. When, when we meet Jesus, everything begins to change and, and, and he begins to set us free. And our hope and our boasting is not in ourselves, but it is in him. And that's a mark of a true believer. Somebody says, well, how'd you become a Christian? Well, let me tell you what I did. Wrong? That's, that's not it. Let me tell you what Jesus did. Why? Because my hope and my confidence are in what he did not in what I do. 
If your salvation and your confidence and your hope are in what you can do, how often you can go to church, how long you can go between cussing or drinking or whatever else it is that you want to put on your list, if your confidence is in you and how well you can do this thing, then your hope is in the wrong place. Our hope is in Jesus because he is the one who's made a way for us. Moses made a way for the slaves to escape physically. Jesus made the way for us to escape spiritually. And by the way, Moses was leading them to a promised land. Jesus is leading us to a promised life, a life that is eternal, a life that that will go on and on and on. But as we'll see in these next couple of verses, the, the Israelites, even though they've been delivered, the Hebrew people have been delivered from Egypt, their hearts kept turning back. And Jesus was not just upset with the sin. He was upset with the root of the sin. And that root was unbelief. Look what he says here. He says in verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. And I said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways, and as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Do you remember what happened in the Exodus story? God set them free. He begins to take them from Egypt into this promised land that he's promised to Abraham, their their forefather, that they would one day rest in and they would one day be able to enjoy. It was a land flowing with milk and honey and all these great blessings of God. And God begins to lead them through the wilderness. And they begin to grumble. And they begin to turn back. And their hearts keep going back to the gods of Egypt. They even craft the golden golden calf. And they they begin to bow down and worship that. And and, and just go right back to the life that they knew. And, And in some ways you can't blame them for that. Because that was all that they knew. These people that he's delivering from Egypt had been there for 400 years. So generations had been born knowing nothing but slavery. And their hearts, instead of being transformed by all the miracles that God did to bring them out, the miracles God did to to, to keep them safe by by drowning Pharaoh's army and, and letting them cross over on dry ground, all of those things didn't change their heart. I think we live in a day where people today say, man, if if God would just show up and do, boom, whatever it is, then I would believe. And that's great to think it's not true. Jesus did miracle after miracle after miracle. You know what they did to him? They nailed him to a cross. It wasn't that they lacked the proof. It's that their hearts never turned. Their hearts never changed. Do you realize that you and I can go to church all of our lives? We can listen to messages. We can nod our head. We can say, amen, brother, preach it. And our hearts could never change. Here's what happened. They, he says, I, I, there's, there's, there's an obligation that we have as believers, and that is that as the people of God, who've been saved by God, who are being held fast by God, we have an obligation to listen for the voice of God. Therefore, if you hear his voice today, not tomorrow, not later, don't procrastinate. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
So here's what he's saying. As God calls you, as God's spirit prompts you, as you're walking through your day saying, Lord, what is it you want me to accomplish today? And God's spirit prompts you to do something. Maybe something as, as simple as texting a friend and saying, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm thinking about you. I want to check on you. As God prompts you, whatever it is, big or small, stop right then and obey. Listen to his voice. Don't, don't harden your heart. Don't say, well, Lord, I'll get around to that later. I've got more important things to do right now. What could be more important than what God's saying for us to do at this very moment? There's nothing. But he says the people that, that, that God set free, they harden their hearts. And he's going to say this later on, but the hardening of their heart was rooted in unbelief. They didn't believe that God had a plan, or they didn't believe that God could execute that plan. They get out of Egypt, and, and one of the first things that happens is they, they get backed into the corner at the Red Sea, and, and they think, we're going to die. And they begin to say, why did you bring us out here, Moses? Why did you bring us into the wilderness just to let us die? At least back in Egypt, we, we knew what to expect. At least back in Egypt, we got three square meals a day. At least back in Egypt... You know, we, we had a, a place to live, a little house to, it wasn't much, but it was a house. And not these tents we keep taking up and putting down. They didn't believe that God could rescue them. They didn't believe that God could sustain them. They didn't believe that God could satisfy them. And this unbelief began to manifest itself in their grumbling and their griping and in their hearts continually going back to Egypt. And so he's warning the Hebrew people now, this side of the cross, to say, listen, you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. And, and, and as your Savior and as your Lord, he's going to lead you and he's going to guide you. But you have a responsibility now. You've been set free from sin, but there's still this responsibility to listen to his voice and to obey him as he calls you forward. So don't harden your hearts. Do not allow unbelief to take root in your life. How... How does unbelief take root in my life? Here, here's a couple examples. You're at work. And the person you work next to is struggling. And they let you know, man, this has been a rough week or this has been a tough time. And the Spirit of God may prompt you to say, hey, offer to pray for that friend right now. And you go, oh, Whoa, wait, 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 we're at work and there's other people standing around and, 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 and what if they take it wrong and what if, you know, and, and all these lawsuits in the world, what if, I, that's unbelief. That's saying, God, you're calling me to do something, but I don't believe that you can see me through this. That's unbelief. It's, it's, it's God prompting you to do something and you coming up with every excuse in the world why that won't work. And why you can't do that. So, Lord, I'll tell you what, I'll wait for a better opportunity. I'll, I'll wait and maybe I can catch them in the parking lot before they leave. Or maybe I can next week or next month. Or I'll tell you what, God, here's, here's, if you really, really want me to do this, then let it rain on my car but nobody else's car. <laughs> you know, we come up with these excuses and, and these, these, these games that we play with God. Prove me to me, God, that that's really you speaking. And that's a sign of unbelief. And unbelief begins to harden our heart because every time God prompts us to do something and we don't, that's sin. And sin hardens our heart. So what we tend to do is sometimes to make excuses for the sin. Or we try to cover up the sin or we try to rationalize the sin. And he says all those things fall short. So here's what he's calling us to do. When you hear his voice, and this is a phrase that three different times in this chapter and the next he's going to use. Today if you hear his voice, hear his voice do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Don't harden your hearts. That's so easy for us to do. 
But he says, this is what happened. Your fathers, your forefathers back there in the wilderness, they put me to the test. And they saw what I could do. And it wasn't pretty for them. Remember the story? God gets them all the way to the, to the edge of the promised land, and he says, all right, it's yours. Go. Oh, let's, let's send some spies, and let's check this thing out. Let's get a military strategy together. And God's like, you got me. What, what more do you need? Just listen. Just go. This is yours. Oh, well, we're going to spy the land down. So send the spies, and the spies look. And what do the spies do? They come back and say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Those guys got big armies, and we're like grasshoppers in their sight, and we, we can't. And God says, sure you can. And they say, no, we can't. So we're going to camp out here a little bit longer until we get stronger, until we get a better plan, until till, till we work out our own plan. And God turns them around and they do another lap around the wilderness again. And for 40 years, their hearts grow harder and harder and harder. Here's what the people were saying. God, prove yourself. And God says, how much more do I need to prove myself than what I've already done? You were slaves in Egypt and I set you free. You were pinned against the Red Sea, and I dried the land and let you walk across, and then I drowned the army that was chasing you. You you set up camp in the wilderness, and I feed you every single day. You go to places where there's no water, and I let water come out of a rock so that you can drink. You go to a place that's got bitter water, and I make it fresh water. Everything you need, your clothes don't wear out, your shoes don't wear out. Everything you need is provided for you. I've even provided a sacrificial system that that you can go and confess your sins and and we'll shed the blood of an animal and we'll cover that sin until the true covering comes. I've done everything that you need. What more do you want? Yet we still drive some of those same bargains with God. God, if if you'll just... Then I will, and he goes, what more do you, look at that cross. What more do you need than that to prove to you that I'm able and that I'm faithful and that I'm good? What more do you need than I've already given? They put God to the test. Their test was, God, show us your power. I need another sign. I need another miracle. I need another, you know, another flock of quail. Sure would be nice right about now, God. Show me your power. Prove yourself to us again, God. And here's what God did. God proved himself by pulling back. And said, you think that all this that you've got is by your own hand? Let me just pull back and I'll show you what you are apart from me. I'll show you how weak and pathetic you are without me. No more big signs, no more big wonders. I'll just let you see what you are without me. And sometimes in our life, guys, that's what God does. He just kind of takes a step back and says, okay, you think you're all that? Let me show you what you are without me. And we realize how quick things can change, how short life can be. We realize that, that, you know what, I, I don't hold the world in my hands. And I do need someone who does. So they said, prove yourself to us. And God says, no, I've already done that again and again and again. The fault is not with me, God says. The fault is with you and your wayward hearts. He says, therefore, I was provoked. That's a strong term. That that word provoked means to be, it can mean several different things. It can mean to be angry or disgusted. 
It, it literally means to, 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 to put something in your mouth that is so repugnant, you just, you've got to get it out, and you spit for days. It's what we see in Revelation, where he says, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, and I want to spew you out of my mouth. When I, when I read that, that, that description and I looked up that definition, it reminded me of what happened to me during Hurricane Rita. We had, we had, we had evacuated out of town and I came to town and, and, and I didn't have enough gas to get back to my farm. And Janet's mom says, well, I got my car parked in the garage and it's full of, it's full of gas. So I went and I got a siphon hose. And I'm going to siphon this gas out of her tank and, and I can't get the hose down the spout so I have to take loose the rubber tube and I stick the thing in there and I blow and I hear air bubbles. I'm like, all right. But I've got this 40-foot-long water hose, you know? And I'm sucking, and I'm sucking, and I'm sucking, trying to get some suction going. All of a sudden, it came, and I swallowed gas, y'all. And, I mean, it burned down to the bottom of my stomach, and I started gagging. I'm still gagging, just telling y'all this story. But I started gagging and puking and just throwing up on the side of the driveway. And, I mean, this gas is burning. And I burped fumes for the next three days. I drove back to Pitkin to our farm with the window rolled down because the smell of the burp was so bad. I was gagging. And I'm like, oh, that is something in your mouth that you just, oh, I'm fixing it. I'm going to lose it, guys. You just, you just got to get it out. You know, you just got to get rid of it. That's what's happening here. He says, these guys provoked me. They made me just want to puke them because nothing I did would change their heart. Nothing I did would get them to put their faith and their trust in me. Their hearts, he says, were always going astray. And the reason was, he says, they did not know my ways. Here's what God's saying. Not that they didn't know how God operated. They didn't know the heart of God. They didn't see that God loved them, that, that, that he had redeemed them, that he had set them free, and that he wanted to make them his very own, his prized possession, his children, his family. That promise that he'd made to Abraham was for them, and they didn't know it, and they didn't believe it. And they felt that God was just their, their, their little genie. They could rub the lamp, and he would pop out and give them whatever they wanted. And he says, that's not me. You belong to me. I don't belong to you. They didn't know my ways. They didn't know God's heart. You see, their, 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 their hearts had refused to trust God. And their actions proved that distrust. Because their, their hearts remained enslaved even after their bodies had been set free. We can face that same struggle today. Some of us, before we came to Jesus Christ, had a life completely different than anything that we would see in, in, in our lives today. Sometimes we can forget all that Jesus has already done. And our hearts can go astray. He's already warned us about drifting away. He's going to say here about, about pulling back. He says, therefore, I was provoked. I was repulsed by them. And I said of them, they always go astray in their heart. And the reason that they go astray is they don't know my character. If they knew me, if they really saw my heart, really understood my heart, if they sought after my heart instead of just my hand, they would know me. And it would change everything. But they haven't. And so I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. For that generation... God said to them, you will all die in the wilderness. 
outside the place of rest that I have picked out and prepared for you. Do you know what that says to us today on this side of the cross? It says to us that if we don't see the heart of God, if we don't respond to the heart of God, if we don't come to Christ in, in, in humility and we come to Christ in repentance and we come to Christ in faith and trust and in belief that he is everything that he says he is, then we will not enter that rest either. That rest is talking about eternity, but it's also talking about life between now and eternity. You see, there, there's something that happens. When, when you and I live in belief, we're granted rest. But unbelief brings unrest. And that's why we still struggle with the works thing. Because our hearts are not at rest in what Christ has done. We are not at peace with with grace and grace alone. So we want grace plus our works. And that puts us back into a state of unrest instead of rest. Of uncertainty instead of certainty. Of insecurity instead of security. When we began to add to grace, we change grace. And it's no longer grace. And he's saying here to them that these guys, they resisted, they were, they were, they were disobedient, they, they provoked me, they put me to the test, and the result of that was they never got to enter the rest that I intended for them. So because of that, he issues a warning to us. He says, so I want you to take care, brothers. Take care to, to be on guard, to be on high alert. Unless there be any be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now he goes straight to the root of the problem. You see, they're, they're, they're testing God. They're, they're, they're provoking of God. They're, they're disobedience to God. Their hardness of heart. All of that flowed out of this, their unbelieving heart. The heart was the root. The rest of that stuff was just the fruit that it produced. So they had this unbelieving heart that didn't believe that God really loved them, that didn't believe that God was able to sustain them, that didn't believe that God had something better for them. That's why they kept wanting to go back to Egypt. If they truly believed there was a promised land flowing with milk and honey that was already granted to them by God, do you think they really would have chosen slavery in Egypt over that? But they didn't believe. That was the root of unbelief. So he says, make sure that you don't have an evil, unbelieving heart. Because that will lead you to fall away from the living God. Now, here's what he means. You go, oh, can you lose your salvation? Is that what he's saying? Not at all. But an evil, unbelieving heart is a heart that pulls away from the living God. To fall away literally means to to detach oneself, to to pull oneself away from that. And he says you don't want to to, to pull away from the, 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 the Lord, the living God. You don't want to withhold your faith and your trust and your love and your belief in the living God. So how do we keep from doing that? As believers, if if we've got this option of of drawing near to God and being in fellowship and union with God, and yet there's this real danger that we can somehow pull back from God. You say, well, do believers pull back from God at times? At times, we, we fall into sin. And that sin can create some unbelief inside of us that calls us to kind of pull back from God, to resist God. So how do we keep from doing that? Look what he says in in verse 13. But I want you to do this. He says, I want you to exhort one another. That means to warn, to encourage, to remind one another, to help one another every day. Now, in order for us to be able to exhort and help and remind and encourage one another, we've got to be in community with one another. 
We've got to be in community. It's one thing to say, well, I can catch the sermon online. Great, but that doesn't give you community. It gives you content, but it doesn't give you community. And community is more than just somebody pouring into you. It's you pouring into others. And how can you do that from a distance? I'm thankful that we have technology that can broadcast the gospel to people who can't be here this week. And I'm thankful that they would tune in. But that is never a substitute for the community that God desires for us to have. And he's saying here, what, what you're going to do that's going to protect you from falling back into unbelief, that's going to protect you from, from pulling back from God, that's going to protect you from the deceitfulness of sin, the thing that's going to do that is the community that I've placed you in, the people that I've put you there with. And so I want you to exhort one another every single day, as long as it's called today. In other words, as long as there's this moment, this window of opportunity for you to live out your faith. And I want you to do that so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here's what's important. Listen, I I understand that I can worship God in a boat. (laughs) I can worship God on a deer stand. I can worship God anywhere I go. I understand that. But I can't find community in a deer stand. I can't find community by myself in a boat. I can't find community just watching online week after week after week. And that means that my protection, that means that my help, that means my encouragement, that means the thing that's going to keep me from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, the the trickery of sin, is the body of Christ that, that God places me in. It's making myself known to others and them making themselves known to me. I need people who will speak the truth to me. When I began to make excuses for why I'm not doing something, that'll go, is that the gospel? Is that what we're called to do? I still think about the conversation that Dalton and I had when we went to see Johnny in the hospital when he was sick and and they were wanting to move into our, our home with us, and I was just not at that place yet. I was not ready to do that. And Dalton's question to me was, as a brother, what better place could Johnny and Ann see the gospel than in your house? That's somebody exhorting, encouraging, reminding, saying, let's get back to the gospel. It's, it's, it's not what you want. It's not what you think is, is it's not your plan. Is that what God wants? I need people like that in my world because you know what? I get off track. And I need others to say, let's go back to the gospel and see if if what you're saying is is, is gospel or if we can do better. And that's what you get in a family of God. That's what you get when you have true relationship with one another. And so he's saying, guys, one of the ways that you keep from becoming like them is to be in community with others where you can share your heart and others can share their heart with you and you can talk through these decisions that that you're making in life and you can say, let's look at the gospel and see if that lines up with what God has said. So he says, look, I want you to encourage one another, exhort one another daily. As long as you have this opportunity to live for the Lord, I want you to do it so that you will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And and, and he says, because here's what's happened. We have come to share in Christ. We know that we belong to him if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Our confidence that he is God and we are not. Our confidence that his grace is enough and my works can never amount to to anything at all. We've come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then he repeats that again. As it said... 
Today, if you hear his voice. Now, this is how you know that the writer of Hebrews was a pastor. He's going to repeat himself three times, okay? Here he goes again, second time, okay? If you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart. Trust his promises. Trust what he's telling you to do. Be quick to obey. Not, not slow and, and excuse-making, but, but be quick to obey what he's saying. Don't be like those in the rebellion. And then he describes for us once again the heart of those who rebelled against God. Look what he says. For who was it, who were those that, that heard and rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? Who, who rebelled against God? Wasn't it those that God set free? Wasn't it those that God had pulled out of slavery and promised a brand new life and yet they still rebelled? Second question. With whom was God provoked? With, with whom was, was God just repulsed? For 40 years. Who was it that left that bad taste in God's mouth for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned? They refused to trust and believe and they sinned and their bodies died. They fell in the wilderness. Third question. To whom did he swear that they would never enter his rest? But those who were disobedient. Now look at this. Three things they did. They rebelled, they sinned, and they were disobedient. Do you know why? He tells us in the last verse. So we see that they were unable to enter, to enter that rest because of their unbelief. That's the root that produced the fruit of disobedience, the fruit of sin, the fruit of of rebellion. They never fully gave their hearts to Christ. Geographically, They were relocated. Spiritually, they never were. He moved them, but they never experienced his rest. Listen, guys, you can come to church and you can clean everything up on the outside. And you can be a good model citizen. You can be a great Baptist, whatever that means. They won't even buy you a cup of coffee. You can get the outside looking good. But if the heart never changes, then you're no different than these that God set free from from slavery. And you'll die in the wilderness, never making it to the promised land. Never making it to the place that God has prepared for you. What, What have we accomplished if all we do is clean up the outside? We may impress a few people around us. We may have the people in our community thinking we're a good neighbor. But what matters the most is missed. What matters the most is missed. Because God didn't just create you to bring you to heaven. If that's all God wanted was people in heaven to populate the heavens, then he could just snatch you up and take you right now. God created you that he might remake you in him, and that you might desire to worship at his feet. If your heart never changes, then that's never going to happen. So why would he bring you to heaven if, if your heart's still turned against him, if your heart's still not his? 
Heaven is for a place, is a place for people whose hearts have been turned back to God. And even as weak as we are right now, and as much as we fail, and as many times as we fall short right now, heaven is a place for those who are, who are being pursued by God and in, in, in response to that are pursuing God. We, we work not for grace, but we work from the place of grace. Grace has been poured out. We recognize that that's our only hope. And so our confidence and our hope are in the grace of God. And in that grace, he begins to change us day after day. We won't be perfect until we get to heaven. But there's coming a day when God will make us perfect as his children. So Moses was his servant in God's house. Jesus was the son over God's house. Moses led a people who were stiff-necked and repulsive to God. And Jesus calls a people who are repulsive and stiff-necked and opposed to God. The difference is Moses changed a physical location. Jesus changes our spiritual. And that's what he's come to do for you and for me today. It's to change us on the inside. That's when we talk about salvation being a, a giving of my heart to God. You're not pulling your heart out and giving it to God, but you're giving your affection, your loyalty, your, your everything to him. And you're saying, I put this in your hands and I ask you to reshape and remake my heart in your image. If you've never done that today, all the polishing of the cup, all of that doesn't matter if the inside is still unchanged. Jesus came to change the inside. And he can do that for you today. It, it, it happens by you coming into to God's presence right now. God's here and you're saying, God, I can't save myself. I can't change what's on the inside. But I believe by grace you can and you will. And so I choose today to put my faith and my trust completely in you. Not grace plus works, just grace. And I give myself to you and ask you to make me anew what you want me to be. If you've never done that, today could be the day that you make that decision and that you invite Christ to, to make that change inside of you. The writer of Hebrews says that's, that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. In a nutshell, if the inside doesn't change, you will never make it to the promised land. You will never make it into the presence of God. Jesus says in Matthew, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, come unto me. Come to me. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who can do this. Come unto me, all you who are weary. You've been trying for a long time to get things right with God. Stop trying. And today, put your trust in what Jesus has done for you. Come to me, all who are labor heavy laden. And look what he says. I will give you what? Rest. And look what it says later on. Rest for your soul. Wouldn't you like to be at rest? No longer in unrest with God. No longer in this place where, where, where there's turmoil and, and you don't know today if you were to die where you would spend eternity. But wouldn't it be nice to know that that's settled? It's at, it's at rest. It's done. The only way for that to happen is to come to Jesus. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can come to the Father except through me. If you've not come to Jesus as your Savior, man, I tell you what. I just want to beg you, encourage you to come to Jesus today. 
Because that's where life begins. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And you can't find it any other way. Let's pray together.